you know, we have the introduction of oil coming from the world's biggest producer in the world. So, you know, it's it's not a small thing. It's not just introduction of another new field in North Sea or another grade from West Africa. This is this is a big deal. This is introduction of a major crude oil from from the biggest producer in the world. So, everything sort of tallies up to make it quite a big event and something we haven't had in the past. All of this is now adding a lot more complexity to this benchmark that was already probably the most complex benchmark of any commodity in the world. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Abax Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. Welcome back to Days of Futures Past on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abax Technologies. Our guest today is Adi Imsharovich, Director at Surrey Clean Energy, former global head of oil trading at Gazprom Marketing and Trading, and author of Trading and Price Discovery for Crude Oil, as well as editor of the book Brent Crude Oil, Genesis and Development of the World's Most Important Oil Benchmark. We'll be discussing the history and speculating on the future of the Brent crude oil market. Hello, Adi. Welcome to Smarter Markets. Hi, David. Thank you for joining us today. On this podcast series, we've been discussing the past to draw lessons for building smarter commodity markets for the future. And I've been looking forward to this because you've recently published a book in sort of the same spirit, looking back to the history of the Brent crude oil market to better understand its future. And I believe the recent inclusion of WTI Midland crude oil in the Brent benchmark complex is what motivated you to write this book, or at least to put it together at this point in time. So I was thinking to start us off, maybe you could tell us what makes this such an important event in the history of the Brent crude oil benchmark. Thanks, uh, uh, David. Uh, it, it's, it's a pretty good match, you're right. And, uh, and I think uh, the way we came up with the book sort of came happened roughly this time last year. I was uh, kicking around you know, with some material uh, from my previous book on, on trading and price discovery for crude oils. And I spoke to a couple of my colleagues, uh, Liz Bosley and uh, Colin Bryce, both of whom are sort of veterans uh, from oil trading in the Brent market. And uh, they thought it was a good idea probably to put something together. And But I really wanted to kind of, you know, speed it up a little bit for the introduction of WTI into Brent because uh, it's such an important event, as you just mentioned. And the reason why it's such an important event, well, Brent has been global benchmark for crude oils and, and sort of one of these the prices that you actually look at first thing when you wake up in the morning in financial markets, right? And it's been it's been that key number for, for decades now, a true international benchmark. And suddenly it's always been linked to the North Sea, to Europe and the North Sea. So that's reason number one. Reason number two is it's always been a, a, an FOB loading contract. And suddenly now we have a new contract that is going to be based on, on delivery of WTI into Europe. So that's the, the second reason. 
And probably the biggest reason is the fact that, you know, we have the introduction of oil coming from the world's biggest producer in the world. So, you know, it's it's not a small thing. Uh, it's not just introduction of another new field in North Sea or another grade from West Africa. This is this is a big deal. This is introduction of a major crude oil from, from the biggest producer in the world. So everything sort of tallies up to make it quite a big event and something we haven't had in the past. All of this is now adding a lot more complexity to this benchmark that was already probably the most complex benchmark of any commodity in the world. Well, this is certainly a big deal, and it's certainly a complex benchmark. And I wanted to like go back in time a little bit with you, though, because the, the history of Brent has demonstrated, I think, what it takes for a benchmark to form, to grow, to evolve and adapt, or not adapt and die. And it remains to be seen if this will be the last chapter in the history of the Brent benchmark or just a new one for a benchmark that's evolved and adapted many times before. I'd like to go back to the beginning because to borrow and twist a phrase from our guest Michael Marks a few weeks back, the transformative events of the 1970s and 1980s made it inevitable that a crude oil benchmark would form, but it wasn't inevitable that it would be Brent. And so... I was wondering your thoughts on what conditions laid the foundation for Brent to emerge as the international benchmark for global oil trading. Thanks, Dave. Uh, I, I, I listened to Michael's podcast and I thought it was excellent. I, I, I always enjoy going back to history because there's so much to learn from it. And the events that we see these days, as, as we speak in the oil market, remind us so much of the events in the past. And that's, that's how we learn and that's how we, I guess, uh, adapt and trade in today's market. Just, just to probably, uh, I'll, I'll just sort of uh, revisit some points that Michael mentioned, but in a slightly different angle. I think obviously, yeah, there was a uh, 70s were big. Initially, there was a collapse of the so-called horizontal control by the oil majors of, of the market. With the Iranian revolution, there was the vertical so-called inter integration of the oil market collapsed. And in many ways, actually, OPEC countries helped creation of the spot market because uh while, you know, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Algeria, Venezuela refused to participate in the spot market, some OPEC countries actually loved it. Uh, Iran, for example, used it almost uh, entirely for a period of time just uh, selling into spot markets. And the reason was the fact that spot prices were actually higher than the, the so-called official prices. But, you know, so we have this period when, when OPEC is kind of losing control of the oil market, not to say in the book, in my first book, I said, I don't think they ever really were in control because throughout 1970s, the markets were the, due to growing demand. I think OPEC was simply riding the market. The market was going up and they were just adjusting their prices up and up and up. But of course, as soon as that, there was this major collapse in, in, in demand. And there was a massive, by the way, you know, we've seen this recently, Dave, with COVID. We've seen a big drop over 7 million barrels in demand. Well, here, in the period between 79, the Iranian Revolution, 85, we actually saw a fall in demand of 8.7 million barrels, which is absolutely, given that demand at the time was just over 60 million barrels, that was absolutely massive. And at the same time, you have appearance of these new crudes coming from Alaska, for example, in the US, coming from the North Sea, significant production. So OPEC actually what we call now coal on OPEC, fell by almost 14 million barrels. It's just unheard of. It's ridiculous how, how big it was. So OPEC really wasn't in control. And if you can imagine now OPEC trying to set their so-called official prices and markets falling, 
So every time they set it, the market falls and they're too high, and they just they just have no control essentially of, of of the market. That happens roughly at the same time when you have Ronald Reagan and Maggie Thatcher who came out. This is hugely important. Without this, things probably wouldn't have happened. They liberalised the markets. Uh, in the UK, we had the British National Oil Company (BNOC). There was a monopoly that was actually discussing quite openly with OPEC and negotiating prices. So Maggie Thatcher comes in and basically says this is all nonsense and, and sort of gets rid of BNOC eventually uh, and gets pri- all of that gets privatized. Also, this coincides with that uh, this process of liberalization where so-called Big Bang in the city of London happened, where the whole financial industry gets liberalized. So you've got this wonderful merger of commodities and finance. The banks, US banks come to London to trade. Japanese banks come to London to trade. Japanese players and traders like what we called Sogo Shoshas came to, to trade at the same time. So we have this wonderful ecosystem, which is so sort of fertile ground for sort of creation of, of trading environment. And the last point, I think, which I think everyone agrees on was the, the, the fiscal or tax system in the UK that sort of just facilitated movement of oil outside the integrated systems of major oil companies. Normally, they could have kept it in, inside, but the tax system was such that actually, as we will probably discuss in a minute, you know, will facilitate that oil to come out into the market space. Oh, there are so many great points you made in there. I love the, the piece of calling out the decline in demand. So what you often see in commodity markets is that an excess of supply tends to create spot markets and a shortage of supply tends to create forward markets. And it looks like in this case, Correct. it helped really support the spot market. And I wanted to get back to the point about the, the tax policies, because with any new market, there's always trying to get those initial volumes that can create a pool of liquidity. And a lot of that in the, in the UK market, from my understanding, was attributed to tax spinning brought around by, by the fiscal policy. So I was hoping you might be able to describe for our listeners what was meant by tax spinning and how important was it for creating those trading volumes and liquidity in the early Brent market? Dave, it was hugely important. I think it was one of the key elements. Obviously, there were several, as I said, but that, that was a key one. And I'll just probably simplify it a little bit for, for the listeners, because obviously nobody likes to listen about tax too much. And every time I mention tax to my wife, she just goes, I forget it. She just switches off. Anyway, so tax, basically the idea is if because you have integrated oil companies in the North Sea, they have their exploration production uh, and, and then refineries, or is, as in industry speak, we say there's upstream and downstream. They can literally produce their oil and then put it into their own refineries, in which case we don't have a price, right? I mean, they can put whatever price they want on that, but if there's no price, how do you tax them? So, of course, you know, the governments need some sort of price assessment and they look at other markets, whatever is, is any available information out there to sort of set the price. So now you have some sort of, let's imagine the long term, let's, let's say average month, it was average month, sort of rolling average prices assessment of, of the value of Brent. Now, if you are a major oil company, let's say I'm a trader and I was, and I did this, uh, uh, sitting in, uh, as I was in Texaco office in London, sitting and looking at the average prices of, of Brent, let's say average prices today are $80 a barrel, which is, and tax reference price is $80 a barrel, exactly the same as the market price. I don't really need to do anything because everything is fine in equilibrium. 
But let's say there's a sudden fall in, in the spot price to $70 a barrel. Suddenly, spot price is $70 a barrel. If I sell my cargo of rent, I will get taxed at $70 a barrel, not $80, which is a tax reference price. Then what I can then do, sell the cargo at $70 a barrel and buy from another major a Brent cargo, okay, at $80 a barrel and put in my old system. So the net result is I get taxed on 70 rather than 80. Now, the key to this whole equation was the fact that trading was taxed only at corporate tax rate and upstream was taxed at additional tax rates. So they were different. So uh, it was a perfectly legal tax loophole, which was closed over a period of time, which was being closed. But that facilitated big companies with big integrated systems not to keep it in the system and keep that sort of price secret, but actually to release the barrels into the marketplace and either directly to another major or by intermediaries, which also happened to grow in the 1980s and and trading companies that came in to uh, facilitate those trades. Such a fascinating piece of the early Brent market that, you know, a way to unlock those transactions that were occurring within companies and have them move to the market where they could be visible. And there's always different things in every market like that. But, you know, we often see a pretty broad pattern over the life cycle in commodities markets that kind of repeats from market to market. And that's a lot of these markets begin with integrated firms and long-term contracting. And then that evolves into bilateral trading in the physical markets. Eventually, an OTC over-the-counter market may develop. And then eventually, as that becomes more robust, an exchange-traded futures market. And I'm curious, how did the OTC-forward markets develop in Brent? And how important were the price reporting agencies in creating Brent's rise to being a global benchmark? Right. Well, we, we're going now into one of the chapters written by a colleague of mine, Colin Bryce, who was head of commodities at Morgan Stanley, um, global head of commodities, Morgan Stanley, and, and also at the time he was uh, trading Brent. Basically, what, what happens now is you've got, I think when we stopped at sort of development, big bang in London, financial markets, uh, banks coming in, Sogo Shosha's coming in. You've got also one, one interesting thing, which your listeners may not know, is traders come in. And the reason traders come in is not just to speculate on the price. There is obviously a, a big element of that. But there was with Brent something peculiar it was called tolerance. So if you if you buy a Brent, the end user can lift either plus my or minus five percent, which is on a five hundred thousand cargo, twenty five thousand barrels. So it's a swing of fifty thousand barrels. So obviously, if you buy it at high price, you want to minimize the cargo. You want to what lo- you want to load as little as possible, or four hundred seventy five thousand barrels. Or if you bought at a low price relative to the market, you maximize it. So now these companies discovered a whole new game where you can actually have a lot of buys and sells and actually construct these chains where you could actually do buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell, at the end, keep the cargo maximizing or minimizing that volume. And in fact, on, on one cargo, you can make, in theory, over a million dollars, okay, just by having lots of buys and sells. So that's another thing that it's not very often mentioned, that this tolerance game actually it made people go in and actually quite happily trade as much as possible because that would give them a whole range of prices. We called it on our boards because we literally have boards on the wall and have buys and sells, and we would have all the brand physical trades on, i.e., cash trades on on the board. So that was quite interesting as a development. Uh, 
The the other one was Sogo Shoshas. They were quite happy to go in between for uh, for smaller you know margins. They also in- increased liquidity in the brand market. And then uh, of course PRAs. PRAs came you know came back from you know US from Warren Platts. I think it was in in, in 1900s. But uh, when Rockefeller and his Standard Oil were disbanded, you know through uh, anti monopoly regulation. But of course, suddenly uh, companies, you know, like Platts suddenly have a fertile ground because the governments want them, because the governments want to know what the price is for tax reasons. Companies want them because they want price discovery. Brokers want them because then they can refer to some sort of set price at the end of the day. So they suddenly start playing a very, very important role. So you have a number of uh, PR, what we call them PRAs, like uh, Platts, Argus, which is Argus Media today, you have a London Oil Report in Japan, you've got RIM and so on, everyone gets involved. So with a number of brokers, you've got this whole ecosystem and, and it becomes particularly important in the rent market where suddenly because of the volatility in the 1980s, so-called physical or dated brand becomes really important. And a lot of people don't get the difference between forward and data brand. It's very simple. Data brand is a forward brand with dates. <laughs> it has the dates <laughs> attached to it, which means it's kind of turning physical. It's going to load. Okay. So PRAs now go and actually look at this data brand. They, they see the trades. They set the prices. And very soon, because of volatility, companies go out there and say like, well, we, we don't want to trade fixed prices. Way too volatile. We're just going to trade our crude relative to this great new benchmark, which is very liquid, and it's called dated Brent. So, um, uh, and we still have it today. And it's pretty fascinating in that you know when you talk about this ecosystem that was kind of primed to be trading oil at that point in time with the banks, the quote-unquote Wall Street refiners, the physical traders. I think often people think, well, there's a physical spot market and there's a forward or futures market. But Brent shows there can be many things in between and many innovative types of financial contracts that sprout up to kind of tie the members of this ecosystem together. I was curious, were there any like innovative developments in the OTC market in those early years before the futures contract that helped to lead to the creation of a futures contract? Oh, absolutely. Um, if, if you just allow me to take a little step back, just as an introduction, we, I always say in Brent that the complexity comes. Brent, over time, evolved a little bit like sort of, you know, if one believes in evolution of human, of human body. I mean, we've got an appendix. Do we need it? Well, not really, but it's there. Is it pretty? No, uh, but it's there. It probably does some function, you know, uh, tonsils, uh, wisdom teeth, and, and so on and so forth. They, you know, but one important thing, which I say time after time, was when we had the crisis of 2020 in April 2020, as we know, WTI were negative, well negative, and you spoke about it early on. A lot of benchmarks, such as um, the WTI, Dubai, INE in in China, had lots of problems, but Brent didn't. And one of the reasons why it didn't have have problems was this complexity actually proved to be a strength rather than a weakness, even though people don't particularly like it. Anyway, now going back directly to your question, following the development of forward market, at the time in the early days, Brent was trading at 600,000 barrels, which is quite a big volume on the FOB basis. um, So 
you know, smaller players are on the upstream and downstream. If they want to do some hedging, they had a problem. You either trade a whole cargo, you get nothing. There was no futures contract. There was, you know, uh, in 83 WTI futures contract. But until then, and even after then, WTI or TI, as we often say, you know, had a, a bit of a basis risk. They come the Wall Street players, such as such as uh, the likes of Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and everyone else. They come in, and 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 I think I think it was Morgan Stanley that came up with the idea of uh, cash partials, so called cash partials. So you'd only have forward ca- uh, contracts at the moment, no futures, and they would go to smaller players and say, "Look, cargo is six hundred thousand barrels, but you have to you have to do some hedging. Maybe you don't know at this stage. Could be three hundred, four hundred. We'll just trade." 100 at a time or 50 at a time, whatever the volumes. And then as we come to the end of the month where the contract expires, we either build it up to full cargo, if you wish, or we just book what so-called book out or it's kind of financial settlement, right? So that was a contract that actually was developed and worked like a dream. It was a great contract. Smaller players loved it. It was totally based on the forward contract, which which is the existing Brent forward contract. And um, uh, and that was a pretty much, in my opinion, a precursor to the uh, first successful IPE Brent contract because there were two earlier ones that were not successful. They're, they're based on delivery in Rotterdam in 83 and 85, and they were not successful. And finally, when they copied this cash partials contract, actually, it was a success. And that's interesting. So now let me see if I can wade into the complexity. So you have the forward Brent market, which is yep. based on delivery, physical delivery of a full cargo. So that's something like 600,000 barrels. Then you have, you know, and those forwards have months, but not days attached to them. So then you have the dated Brent market, which has a date <laughs> when you have to deliver. Yep. And then I'm curious because, you know, if you look at the, on this side of the Atlantic, the NYMEX WTI crude oil contract, like the Brent forward market specified physical delivery, the International Petroleum Exchange, which introduced the Brent futures contract, now of course it's owned by ICE, you know, went with this financially settled mechanism. And you said a, a previously physically settled one didn't work. So I'm curious, maybe you could take a little bit more into why did the IPE choose the financially settled route? This is this is Dave. This is a really interesting point because not just because of history, but because of you know what can be learned from it today. For some contracts, like uh, I've been involved, I've written the papers on on the Merban contract. There'll be new Upper Zakum contract. These all futures in in the Middle East and Oman contract and so on. Basically, what happened? It was very very simple. I think it was six hundred thousand barrels, as I mentioned, for smaller players it was just too much. It was just too big. Now, of course, for listeners in the United States. You know, you you can deliver one thousand barrels in, in into Cushing, and no problem. But that's obviously because it's pipe that these are pipeline barrels, and you've got a lot of storage. So storage is a key here. You've got sixty million barrels of storage in Cushing. You, you can deliver whatever you want. You can chop it up any way you like it or not. Whereas with Brent, you basically have it delivered in tank, waiting for a ship to load full six hundred thousand barrels. So there wasn't much of an option there uh, to have a physical delivery. I don't think it would have been particularly successful. And the reason now you can kind of take that lesson on and and I traded DME, which is a, a CME uh, contract in, in the Middle East, DME Oman from day one until about 2020. And one of the problems was always towards the expiry, it, it, it becomes extremely volatile. It's a physical delivery contract. So you go along Oman, 500,000 barrels. And if you've got last 20, 
20 lots or 20,000 barrels to buy, on the last day and liquidity uh, dries up, you get ridiculous volatility because everyone panics. I only have to buy 20 lots. And let's say offer is about $5 a barrel, (laughs) or there's no offer whatsoever. And you go like, well, I, I can't deliver now. So the problem is with contracts with no alternative delivery, there are physical and you can only deliver a whole full cargo, they really um, exclude a number of players. So they asked when the ME was trying to develop it, they asked you know people whether they wanted a financial contract and they said yes, but they didn't trade it. But they, <laughs> so it's a catch-22, you know, you've got a contract that should be trading. It is trading fine. It's actually doing reasonably well. But the size excludes a lot of players, so you get volatility in the last days of trading. And I'm sure that's the case with some other commodity markets out there. And so then I would imagine the forward market with the physical delivery continued to be utilized. The dated Brent market, which is closely connected to that forward market, provided the the prices that then the futures contract could be cash settled against. So you kind of, I guess why people refer to it as the Brent complex, you have yes. all these different markets under under that overall heading of Brent. And so did the, I guess the the producers and the big players would continue to use the forward market. And then yep. those who aren't active in the physical market would use the would use the financially settled futures. Is that right? Yeah, and also the nice thing with Brent, over time you've got another thing which is called EFP, which which you have in other markets as well, which is exchange of physicals for futures for physicals. Okay, so you can actually change your if you want change your position from physical to futures, and then a couple of other really important things that happened in the meantime was uh, CFD is one of the most important developments. We know see what CFD means contracts for differences, but they were in they were. Um, used in the rent market really, really early at the end of, in the late 80s, early 90s. And essentially, the, the need they developed because of a real need, uh, I mentioned earlier volatility. So you, you, you're trading a lot of forward cargoes on fixed price basis. And then you, you have this dated brand as well. When they turn dated, they become sort of dated and a lot of oil trades on dated uh, floating basis. So if you want to change the pricing from fixed to dated or from dated to fixed, you, you could utilize this CFD market. And then it really exploded. I remember I was a young trader in 91 in London. It was at CFD. It was just exploding and it was, it was, it was crazy how much it was trading. But it's brilliant because you could easily change your fixed price into floating and floating to fixed price or, or have both legs floating. So it was a great market. And eventually you had a, something called... A DFL market, which is a dated to frontline average month. And if you were a refiner trying to hedge your margin, usually you do it over a whole month, you could utilize those types of swaps as well. So you've got all these terrible acronyms in the brand market, EFPs, DFLs, CFDs, uh, whatnot. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's pretty crazy out there, but it works. Yeah, you can tell how early in the history they were developed, right? Or else we would just be calling them various flavors of swaps. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. In, in colors or something easier to remember. Yeah. Right, right. I feel like we, we've kind of gotten to the almost the high point with Brent, maybe, in that, you know, Brent became a leading international crude oil benchmark. It's used to set the price of the majority of the world's internationally traded crude oil and other products as well out there, like LNG in Asia and other places and contracts. But of course, things change and the physical oil market on which the Brent financial markets are built changed as production of Brent and North Sea crude oil fell. And so the process began of adding more oils to the Brent pool. 
first other North Sea crude, and now, as we've discussed, for the first time in North American crude oil, WTI Midland. As an oil trader yourself, how does this pooling affect how the benchmark trades? You know, there's always this tension between you want to add more to the pool so that you create liquidity, yep. but you also want the stuff to be similar enough that you can trade it as the same thing, more or less. So you want those components to be similar to one another. So how do you see those tensions balancing out? It is a, a bit of a tension. You're absolutely right. And the tension, I think, comes from the diversity of players. From traders' point of view, it tends to be easier because uh, if you're pure, what we call proprietary tra trader, all, all you really care is getting liquidity and getting the values. But you've got in the brand so-called complex, you've got a number of people who are upstream producers, who are refiners and, and so on and so forth. And, and they, they do have a problem with that a lot more. And, and obviously, there's always some friction coming in from new grades being involved. For example, refiners don't want to be delivered. If, if, somebody, if a refiner is in a forward market, they don't want to be delivered the grade they don't expect. So the idea developed uh, by PRAs, uh, which I think is an excellent idea, was that the lowest grade sets the price, which basically means that, well, if somebody delivers you better crude, you get it, you get it at a really good price. So if you're a refiner, for example, and you get Ecofist that's worth $2 more, you get it delivered. And there's something I don't want to bore your uh, listeners with. There's something called QP or, or quality premium. Yes, there is an adjustment. So if you get an Ecofisk, you, you have to pay a little bit more, but you pay only about 60% more. So you actually get a, a great benefit out of this new crude. So that's the way sort of this alternative delivery has been eased into the refiners as far as far as the sort of uh, uh, sort of suppliers or sellers into the contract it's always easier when you have when you have alternatives and i mentioned with oman as a trader i always prefer liquidity than basis risk so if it's going to cost me a little bit more i don't mind as long as i know i can easily perform so the fact you're introducing more crude oils makes it a lot easier for a trader to be comfortable with the performance. If I cannot get Brent, I can look at 40s. If I can't get 40s, I'll look for Rosenberg and so on and so forth. So on one hand, I think that works out well. And on the other hand, for refiners, they just get better crude at, at, at low prices. So that's not too bad either. So it's a, that's kind of the, the way the whole ecosystem's developed and, and has been working reasonably, reasonably well. Uh, similarity, I think, just if you don't allow me to address that, because I think it's an important point, because this whole process of, of changing brands been, lasted well over two years. And the serious contender was Johan Sverdup, which is, uh, which is another North Sea Grey produced uh, in Norway. One of the key reasons, not, not the only one, but one of the reasons why it, it has not been accepted by the industries is just the quality. It's much heavier. It's much higher sulfur. And it really kind of sticks out as like sore thumb in on you know between in that sort of brand basket. Whereas whereas WTI Midland actually is very similar to Ecofisk, so it fits very well from the quality point of view into the into the brand basket. Yeah, and as you said, as as you broaden the basket, it kind of moves to this cheapest to deliver type world or type market, yeah. and that can be good for refiners, can be good for traders because you're keeping the liquidity going. I imagine producers are the ones who aren't thrilled with it because they're only going to want to deliver 
the crude they're getting paid for, which will which will be the cheapest grade. Is that right? What do they do? Do they tend to like not go to the market or do things in a different way? Well, that's something that we can come back to. It's something a little bit technical. When when a crude becomes a, a benchmark, a very important benchmark, they are quite actually happy about it. And we can talk about it in, in terms of uh, WTI Midland. What tends to happen is when, for example, when 40s was introduced into the rent basket, the value of 40s increased. And that's, I will argue, will happen. We've only had a few weeks, so we can't tell now. will happen with WTI Midland as well, which will be a good thing for the producers. And the reason is that if you have this grade as being that you can now deliver into a major global benchmark, you have additional optionality. And optionality, as we know, in markets always been worth something, right? So uh, we, we I, as a rule of thumb, I would say the 40s in, improved over time, but at, at least uh, 50 cents a barrel, at least maybe 70. And I would expect WTR to do the same. So that, that sort of... Um, that's another thing that helps the producers, right? So uh, rather than rather than sell it, and as, as many producers in the U.S. will find out soon, you know, you can sell your crude the old-fashioned way, term barrels or spot barrels, but now suddenly you can just go and say, okay, I've, I know I've got Midland cargo, 700,000 barrels in December. I can just sell it into Brent. And it's, it's, it's a great option to have because it's a very liquid market. It's easy to sell the whole cargo very far forward and gives you an additional optionality. And I'm glad you pivoted to thinking about what's currently happening in the market and what it might hold for the future. So I want to talk some more about this inclusion of WTI Midland. First off, just for some context for our listeners, I I think many people are surprised that following the 2015 lifting of the U.S. ban on crude oil exports, U.S. Gulf Coast's exports of WTI Midland quality crudes to Europe have become quite substantial in the intervening years. I think your book quotes a number of over 1.1 million barrels a day in 2022. And in context, that compares to the other five crudes in Brent Mm -hmm. that are less than 700,000 barrels a day. So, you know, much bigger than the other crudes already. And further, that WTI has been the cheapest to deliver price setting crude for much of that time. Now that my price might go up, as you said. But I want to ask you about the implications of that. Does that mean that Brent may lose its role as a benchmark and could simply become a spread or basis differential to WTI in the future? You know, will it just trade? Will Brent become WTI at the Gulf Coast plus freight? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a really fair question. That's a fair question. And that that has been a topic of discussion for quite some time. Of course, everyone has has their have their own angle to the fact. Let let me start from the back from the last point that you made. WTI US Gulf plus freight equals Brent? Not really, uh, simply because US Gulf WTI is not a benchmark at the moment. It's Cushing. So and US Gulf is just a spread to Cushing. So yes, you can do Cushing plus you know pipeline plus freight, and then get to Brent, which which is great. And I think if anything, it's just a good thing because it just brings together two most important benchmarks in the world. Okay, you know WTI could have been probably the key benchmark before. I would argue if, if it wasn't for the ban, export ban. Okay, but now with the export ban, the next question becomes: Is it going to flood the Brent market? Because currently, yes, I mentioned in the book when we were writing, it's just over one million, one point one million barrels. But we've seen months where we went over one and a half million barrels. 
especially now with the, with the war you, you, Ukraine and the Russian barrels being uh, moved uh, into Asia. So these are huge volumes. So it's roughly double, almost double the volume uh, of, of the Brent benchmark. But as I said, I don't think it's, it's going to be, uh, at least not at this stage, going to happen. Now, a big question, you know, talking about future is, is Cushing going to remain as a benchmark rather than US Gulf? Because with being being uh, one of the biggest exporters in the world, it would or second biggest exporter in the world, effectively, it would make sense to have a benchmark in the US Gulf. But it's really for the buyers and sellers in the US uh, market to, to decide, not for me. So whenever you have these changes in flows of oil, um, you, you do have tendency for benchmarks to swap and change. But in the meantime, I, I really, I actually don't see it because original, my original idea about inclusion of WTI and Brent came quite a long time ago. I wrote my first paper on the subject in March 2019, okay? And the reason was I was talking to a U.S. trader who basically said, well, you know, as soon as, we, as, as the WTI hits the water, it becomes Brent effectively. And it just all sorts of light bulbs started flashing. And I was thinking, like, well, obviously it is because... It's not, people get a little bit carried away, almost like supporting their teams, TI or Brent or Dubai, whatever, as if they were teams. It's from the trader's point of view, it's really about that number being convenient. Brent, we all know, is not Brent. I mean, there are only two or three cargoes of Brent a month, and it's it's a trickle. In fact, some people, some big players are arguing for exclusion of Brent from the Brent basket because it's a bit of a nuisance. <laughs> You know, but it's just a brand name and just WTI has become a part of that brand name. And I don't know if your listeners are aware. I mean, a lot of most people in the old market are aware that it, it actually the whole idea of this alternative delivery came from NYMEX. Because in, in the mid 80s, when, when there was a big crash in the price of oil, a number of wells in the US, over, I hear over 20,000 wells were shut. Uh, and there was simply not enough oil in the in, in the contract, and which fell to about hundred thousand open contracts. And they invented this alternative delivery, and Brent became part. Brent, Bonnie Light, and some other sweet crude were deliverable into Cushing up the pipeline, which was going the wrong way. Well, currently opposite of what it is doing now. And I remember as a young trader, in, in I think it was ninety one, ninety two, we delivered a Bonnie Light into into Cushing. And it worked. It worked just fine. So I, that's one of the reasons why I think, you know, why, why shouldn't WTI be part of Brent? Right. Otherwise, it's, you know, right now it seems like it'll just become a, a spread to a spread with a TI Cushing, a TI on the coast, to the, from the water on the coast to the water in uh, the North Sea. Well, it is a little more complicated than that. Sorry to interrupt, but, but because this is what was going to, goes into Brent is Midland, and it's not necessarily stuff that comes from Cushing. It's the stuff that comes from from the from Midland uh, with very specific quality. So, um, yeah. No, it's a good point. And you've warned me that you crude oil traders are not a sentimental lot um, in, in how you think about these things. And there are differences of opinions. But I think you're a little bit more optimistic about the future of Brent as a benchmark than some others may be. And I was curious, what in Brent's history gives you that optimism for its future, if it is optimism? And what do you see as the risks to Brent as a benchmark in the future? Right. Well, that's a that's a great question. I, I, I what I find interesting in this whole sort of exercise was that people, generally people who do not like the this idea of inclusion of WTI and additional complexity, tend to be older traders, 
and they just don't want to know. It's when I speak to some younger guys, uh, some really bright young guns, they're like, "No, that's all right. It's no, it's no complex. You know, you just put it in the spreadsheet and it's fine. You know, it works." So it it depends which kind of point of view you take. I'm not a young gun anymore, but I think I think it's manageable. I think it's doable. You know, I start, uh, Dave. I start first of all with a very pragmatic view. I, you know, what were the options? For the brand market, you know, I in my last job I was hedging LNG about 15 years out using Brent dated Brent. Of course, we can't couldn't hedge 15 years out. We're hedging about five six years out and then rolling those hedges further out. The reason I'm mentioning this is that there's a huge open interest of these contracts out there that people have. So if we were to materially change Brent or get rid of it, as some people were suggesting, and come up with something new, new, you would have to get rid of all these contracts. And there, there are, I don't know, tens and God, nobody knows tens and millions of barrels of, of, of these, not just paper contracts, but physical contracts as well. All of that would have to be totally renegotiated. So the industry has has had a vested interest to make it work, okay? And trust me, I, I, I've been involved in it quite a bit. It's not, nobody wanted com- complexity. Complexity came out as a result of historical events, uh, as a result of taxation, as a result of legal issues. So we have originally, uh, you know, the intent of the industry was to have WTI FOB loading, but number of players could not accept a sort of potential involvement of US jurisdiction and tax okay so now we basically pass the title in the sort of outside territorial waters on delivered basis so that should eliminate that so that complexity came out as a result of trying to circumvent all these all, all these problems so i'm being very pragmatic i think this is probably the only way print could have been reorganized. But as I mentioned earlier, I think Brent worked well in WTI. So I see no reason why WTI shouldn't work well in Brent. It's a great crude. It's very similar to the North Sea. It comes from a you know free country that will not put any, uh, is very unlikely to put any further restrictions on destination and so on and so forth, like we have with many other types of crude oil. It's freely traded. You have very transparent prices. We use, you know, for Brent, we use English law, which is just an excellent law for transactions. So, you know, the the problems will happen for sure. We always said, uh, Kurt Chapman and I, who wrote several papers together on the subject, there will be some bumpy rides. I don't want to get too technical, but, um, you know, on, on at the moment, I think the key is, is convergence. I think you've had it in your podcast early on. In every futures contract, convergence is absolutely essential. So you have to make sure that that dated Brent, which is the physical side of Brent, and that futures Brent actually converge. I think that there will be some little bumps there, but there's nothing that cannot be fixed. And one of the reasons they can be fixed is that you've got so many of these crazy Brent instruments that you can fiddle with, you know, sulfur adjustments, QP, which is quality premium adjustments, you know, uh, EFPs, DFLs, uh, CFDs, and whatnot. So, um, yes, um, um, I, I, I think this is probably the right way to go. And um, I think judging by the first month of trading in the Brent market has been absolutely remarkable. It's exceeded my expectations. The number of, of, of cargos traded, the number of cargos chained from, from Midland has been uh, exceptional. So um, gives me a lot of material for me and, and my, my mate, Kurt, to write another paper. Thanks again to Adi Imshirovich, Director at Surrey Clean Energy, 
former global head of oil trading at Gazprom Marketing and Trading, and author of Trading and Price Discovery for Crude Oil, as well as editor of the book, Brent Crude Oil, Genesis and Development of the World's Most Important Oil Benchmark. Join us next week when we continue our time in Europe, learning lessons from the past to build a better, smarter markets future. We hope you'll join us. This episode was brought to you in part by ABAX Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe, with markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability, ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets. Facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees, and producer, ABAX Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next week.